In three days, our nation will observe Veterans Day. It was first observed to honor the veterans of the Great War. You remember that war that was to end all wars? Anybody remember that war? No, you don't, do you? You heard about it, though. It didn't work. Otherwise, most of you would not be veterans. Our nation has called upon citizens to prepare and to engage in conflicts, numerous conflicts on our behalf. Your patriotism has established the gold standard of patriotism by which the rest of us must be measured. As the video said, your time and your service is valued and respected. Some of you accomplished that in one tour. Others of you spent a career. You coordinated transportation, you flew missions, you gathered and preserved intelligence, and you did much more. Your careers made it possible for our country to be protected by the people whose experience, whose experience showed us that knowing your job makes a difference. I confess that I have only had a momentary question about those who serve. Seven years ago, I had a grandson enter the Air Force. Now, if Alex sees this, I'm in real trouble. I confess to you when I had a son and son-in-law that were in the service 20-some-odd years before that, but, and I didn't have the same kind of qualms that I had when my grandchildren were now defending us, and my granddaughter was guarding nuclear weapons. So, Alec and Ali, I apologize, because you gained the same skill and expertise that the members of this congregation have displayed, and you kept us safe as well. And Alec continues to keep us safe. Your service and my grandkids' service has protected our freedom, our way of life, our social, political, and economic institutions. Veterans, you have given us the opportunity to develop citizens who are capable of obtaining skills and service to protect us and, and lead us in other parts of our life. You model the characteristics we desire in citizens. And with that, let us look at our text for this morning, Luke 20, verses 20 to 26. So they watched him. They are the, the Jews. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be honest in order to trap him by what he said so as to hand him over to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. So he asked them, Teacher, we know that you are right in what you say and teach, 
and you show deference to no one, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose head and whose title does it bear? They said, The emperor's. He said to them, Then give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to trap him by what he said. And being amazed by his answer, they became silent. Patriotism and citizenship were not straightforward in Jesus' day. They were tricky. In fact, you can't even really call it citizenship. They were subjects of an empire. And what was going on, and the reason that this became a possibility to entrap Jesus, was that there was a live question about this issue of paying taxes. Because the tax system was being used by um, Romans and by the Sadducees and Pharisees, but primarily the Sadducees, to impoverish the people in the countrysides so that they could amass large land holdings and enrich themselves. And so this issue of paying taxes was extremely questionable. So they came to Jesus, and they came to him to trap him. Why? Because the, the ones who were causing the biggest trouble about this were the zealots. They were even taking up arms. And there was a wide range of public opinion about this issue. And Jesus had zealots, known zealots, among his followers. So they wanted, and, and that's kind of unspoken here, but they wanted to leverage Jesus' tolerance for zealots into a trap that would get him carried before the governor and likely executed. But what did Jesus do? He said, you guys got a coin in your pocket? Well, they didn't have pockets, your purse. Oh. Men carry purses, they still do, so don't. They, so they took a coin out of their leather, their leather pouch and they handed it to Jesus and he held it up and he said, whose image is on this thing? And it was the emperor's, of course. So with a a visual aid, Jesus confounded them and said something that has been used and applied and misused by Christians ever since. The verse that King James said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God. But it's stronger than that, and, and, and in some ways more crass than that. It says, Give back to Caesar what's his. And give back to God what's his. That's the literal translation of the words. So what's our obligation to Caesar? Well, we don't live in the kind of place where we're subjects. We live in the kind of place where we're citizens. So how do we take this idea that has always been translated, pay your taxes, and apply it to democracy? 
Because veterans, you gave space for a nation to be born. You've given space for it to thrive and expand. What began as 13 states has expanded to many towns, farms, 50 states, and our reach is beyond our borders, even beyond the limits of our planet. We were founded before or at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and our nation has grown to world prominence and leadership in economic and political matters. And for generations, our democracy has been the model for the world. Those original 13 states democratically governed and materially supplied by capitalism flourished. But you know, both democracy and capitalism depend upon voluntary action. Democracy needs citizens and capitalism needs entrepreneurs and a, and a skilled workforce and consumers or it's just not going to work. And a clear and well-articulated legal system is needed for both. But that's not enough. You see, our size is so large that we cannot legislate everything. But all of the things that I have mentioned have to be supported by a strong public consensus. And if we don't do that, no legal system can cover everything that we need to have covered. And here's the kicker. All of that needs trust. A foundation of trust. Well, it's no surprise that we're a flawed and divided nation. And those flaws have hurt some of our members and have enriched others. History shows the times when we have addressed those flaws and when we have found it convenient to ignore them. But through it all, veterans, you have made it possible for this great experiment known as the United States to continue. Citizens who aren't veterans have to demonstrate our patriotism in other ways. We too have to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. And the only way that we can do that is through participation. And that's more than voting. And a capitalist society needs participation. And that's more than buying. Our nation was the first nation that was launched as what's technically a modern nation. We didn't grow out of a, of a, of a, of a monarchy. We, 
we were a part of that monarchy, but far enough extended that we didn't really grow out of it. And our founders didn't attempt to set up a monarchy. They considered it, but they wanted to create a government that embodied the, the, the philosophy of John Locke and others who talked about individual freedom. And that's what they did. Those same ideas not only led to our revolution, but they led to the French Revolution. And it wasn't long before the French Revolution devolved into the reign of terror, and so something went terribly wrong. And so this French guy named Alexis de Tocqueville, some 50 years after our revolution, wanted to find out why we had made it work and they hadn't. So he came and spent several years wandering around our countryside looking it over, and he came to the conclusion that he didn't know, not at first, because what he found was a country of people dedicated to pursuing their self-interests. That the United States had, had, was a place where people could go after whatever they wanted to go after. But the more he observed, the more he did, began to see that that, that pursuit of self-interest was cocooned and a set of habits that built limits, that built walls, that, built, that made it possible for that to work and to promote the common good at the same time. And so his conclusion in his book, Democracy in America, was that there was this unique balance based upon the habits of ordinary people that allowed them to pursue their own personal interests and still maintain a strong republic by pursuing the common good. In 1985, a Christian sociologist by the name of Ralph Bella went about trying to see how much of that was still around. He spent five years with a group of researchers studying communities across the United States, and he wrote a book. They published a book called Habits of the Heart. And in that book, Bella asserts that there are three types of politics in America. There's the politics of consensus, the things that continue to protect that cocoon. There are the politics of self-interest, but they work when they are controlled by neutral values, values that set limits on how much we can pursue. And then there are the politics when the nation sets aside all of those issues that that send us scurrying along our own paths and transcend them to come together for the common interest. Bella identified them as habits, much as de Tocqueville did, and that the wide range of differences that characterize the United States population are a strength when they are harnessed within this cocoon, and that the only thing, not our differences, not our difference of opinion, not our differences in support of candidates, not our differences of beliefs about how progress can be attained, the only thing that can weaken us is when we weaken the habits of democracy. That's the only time Bella said we could fail. Render under Caesar is not a blanket statement of authority as it has been preached. 
We are citizens of the United States. And we need habits of consensus. We need habits of private interest. And we need habits of public interest. What's our, what do we owe God? What do we owe back to God? Well, God expects a little bit more than Caesar does. Do you realize that? Yeah, thank you. God expects more. Don't be surprised. Once when Jesus was praying alone, with only the disciples near him, he asked him, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others, um, that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. He said to them, but who do you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Messiah of God. That's found in Luke chapter 9, 18 to 20. God expects that you realize that being a member of his kingdom is not a matter of birth. It's not a matter of accident. You and I are citizens of the United States primarily by accident. And if I had, was preaching this sermon in Rwanda, I would have addressed render under Caesar very differently than I rendered it here. Understand that. Citizenship is not the same in every place. But we're believers. At least that's what makes us subjects of the kingdom. You don't inherit it. You sign up for it. And just... Jesus, in his ministry, demonstrates for us the kingdom habits that are, par well, they're not exactly parallels, but, but serve the same function as the habits that I just described for you that Bella and the Tocqueville talk about. And those kingdom habits that Jesus demonstrates come out of biblical principles that are spelled out on almost every page of the Old Testament, that God is righteous, that God is compassionate, and that we are to have fellowship and worship this God who has shown himself to us, who delivered us from, from Egypt, who returned us from Babylon, and for us, who took flesh and walked among us. Now, every American society, like every society, works when the habits that support its structure are there. But it works best when we're not even aware of those habits. That's what habits are. All right, this is a survey that I use when I'm talking about habits with my students in, in university. How many of you brush your teeth this morning? Well, thank you very much. We all appreciate it. How many of you are up and down brushers? How many of you are circular brushers? How many of you don't know? That's what a habit is. A habit is I brush my teeth every morning, and if I'm really good, I brush my teeth at night, and I cannot explain to you whether I brush up and down, crossways, or in circles. That's a habit. And democracy works best 
when we don't even recognize the habits that we have. But they are habits that support democracy. And it's the same for the kingdom of God. How do these principles get worked out in our lives? They've got to be worked out in a web of unnoticed habits. And we're in luck because Jesus spelled them out for us. Jesus said we should make it a habit of taking up our cross because he expects us to routinely give away our lives for the kingdom. Jesus modeled the habit of being the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer of the Old Testament by being a suffering servant and dying on the cross for us. The habit of service should be so normal that we should never notice it. The habit of stewardship should make us aware of our accountability for caring for the house that God has given us and gave originally to Adam and Eve that we should be respectful of. The habit of worship should be so pervasive that there's no time for envy or hatred or dishonesty or disobedience to work into our lives because we are in God's house and with God's people so frequently that those things cannot take root in our life. And how different would the Christian community in the United States be if koinonia was truly a habit that characterized our living together? You see, it is clear through what Jesus teaches that he expects us to be people who are responsible for our faults and our failings. So the question we have to ask is, is why is repentance something that we see in revivals and altar calls, but is not a daily item of prayer? Because we sin daily. I won't ask for a show of hands. He expects forgiveness to permeate our relationships as a true habit would do. So grudges, revenge, they're not habits of the kingdom. The kingdom reveals mutual submission, as Paul would say in Ephesians, and a perpetual act of gratitude for the new life that we have. Paul wrote in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regarding others as better than yourselves. Now, here's my disclaimer, and I shared this with Karen so that if I need a witness and you don't trust me, she can verify it. I finished this sermon last week, and I did last edits to it on Monday so that none of you can quietly or publicly speculate on my preparing these notes after the election. Because the issues in the United States and the issues in the kingdom are citizenship issues, and they are detailed for us in Matthew 20, 25. Render unto Caesar and render unto God. Participating in the civic, economic, and governing aspects of our community is required if we're to, to, to meet that, what that verse says and what Jesus expects of us. Participation in our country as citizens is not optional for us. Now, 
I agree with those who would express a sentiment that it doesn't make any difference who wins the election. Jesus is still in charge. I agree with that. What I disagree with is the implication that the outcome of the election is not important to us. The outcome of the election structures our lives one way or another, and we should be concerned about that as the correct way to live out the command in Luke we've read. Because, you see, each candidate, again, in anticipation of two different outcomes, the conclusion I have is that either candidate brings with them consequences both intended and unintended for their time in office. And those outcomes will impact our lives. Their impacts will cause some people to become winners and some people to become losers in our country. And both our sphere as citizen of the kingdom and our sphere as subject, I mean, I'm sorry, citizen of this country and subject of the kingdom require us to stand up and take notice and to take action because however our lives work out, there are winners and losers that God expects us to minister to. Now, the habits that Jesus outlined for us must be habits that structure our lives. But there are two more. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, you're the light of the world and you're the salt of the earth. In our collective lives together, we have to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to explain its ramifications and we have to persuade people that God is on their side. And we have a healing responsibility that comes from salt that must be applied to whatever the open wounds are of our society. This is ministry. America's changing and it has been for at least three generations. I mean radically changing. Our national culture was set some 300 years ago, and there have been both predictable and unpredictable outcomes. Caesar needs our participation, folks. It needs our salt-like presence. And Jesus needs our obedience. Our patriotic veterans have provided us with the opportunity to do both. The question for you is, will we? Veterans have sacrificed, U.S. veterans have sacrificed for those of us who are citizens of the United States, and I want to express to you veterans, both those of you in the room and those of you who are not, that I personally am grateful for the life that you have created for me the possibility that it, you've provided so that I can develop my life as a citizen of this country and my life as a subject of the kingdom. I want to express our corporate gratitude for the very same things. As a follower of Jesus and as a citizen of the United States, I can be both at the same time. 
you should know, but I will say it anyway. Being a subject of the kingdom takes priority over my citizenship of this country. It flavors, it shapes, it directs the way that I attempt to live that out. But I attempt to live both of them through the developing of habits that you have given me the opportunity to develop. So thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. Because we have the opportunity to shape our world as citizens and as subjects. Render under Caesar the things that are Caesar and render under God the things that are God and make a habit of it. Let's pray. There's no way, Lord, that we can make a, a decision today. We're going to have to make this decision every day for the rest of our lives. My prayer is, Lord, that we will no longer notice when people are serving others. That we will no longer notice when people are giving away their life on behalf of others because that's just who we are. And nor will we no longer notice when we have civil conversations and express our differences, which are important, important for us to have. They're part of our self-interest. And we learn how to live with each other's self-interest and pursue the common good. May that become a habit. We used to have it, and it's gone. So, Lord, this service has been one in which I hope that our veterans feel appreciated and one in which they realize what they have bought for us with their service. But it is to you that we give grace and gratitude for what you have bought for us, which is eternal life. For that we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't have to tell you this. The God who started a work in us is able to finish it. He is able to create for us an opportunity to form habits. He will not form them for us because that would impinge upon our free will, which he also gave us. So if you don't have, it, have habits of citizenship and you don't have habits of being a subject of the kingdom, it lies with you because God's given you the opportunity aided and abetted by our veterans. My hope is that you go forth and practice good habits. You're dismissed.